is the Media and Religion Podcast, your source for the latest conversations and research at the intersection of media and religion. Welcome, I'm Ashley Campbell, a graduate fellow at the Center for Media, Religion, and Culture. And I'm Noor Halabi, a resident fellow at the Center for Media, Religion, and Culture. We're going to be your hosts for this episode of the Media and Religion Podcast. And in this episode, we're introducing a scholar profile series. In this series, we'll focus in on a specific academic and discuss their latest publications and work. And to get us started, we're talking with Nada Magbule, and we're speaking to her via Skype. So in this episode, you will hear some computer noises like a fan. Nida is an assistant professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Dr. Magbule's work addresses racism and immigration with a particular interest in groups from the broad Middle East. Her first book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, came out in September 2017 with Stanford University Press. Welcome, Nida. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. So could you first just give us a quick synopsis um, for our listeners who haven't read your book about what it is actually about? Sure. Um, so uh, the book looks at the predicament of Middle Easterners in the United States more broadly, but it hones in on the case of Iranians specifically um, to uncover kind of how did it come to be that this group from that geographic part of the world has sort of pro forma been part of what we know as the white racial category. So when we look at the U.S. Census or, you know, any number of sort of bureaucratic forms, there's this category called white, sometimes it's called white slash Caucasian, mm -hmm. and the subgroups that are included in that are people with origins in Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. Um, so I look at that backstory of how that came to be, but also take into consideration that, you know, from 9-11 and many other events that have happened even before 9-11, um, this is a community that while is legally counted as white, uh, has socially occupied a space that we could call off-white or even sometimes brown, right? Mm -hmm. They have been othered and racialized in opposition to what we think of as a kind of normative uh, white American citizen. And so my book, um, through the case of Iranians, really goes into the backstory of this community. So not just from 1979, when the first major wave of Iranians came to the U.S. as immigrants, but even before that, in the 1950s, Iranians were the biggest group of foreign students studying in universities in the U.S. Sort of how we think about Chinese students, right? And the, the kind of like um, figure that they have right now in the landscape of American higher education. Um, this was Iranians in the 1950s. But I go even further back, about like 100, 150 years back into Iran's own history to talk about the kind of racial stories and ideologies that these immigrant parents who would later move to the United States, right, and sort of have that first generation of their children who would be born as Iranian Americans, the kinds of narratives and stories that they were told back in Iran and what do those stories look like when they're imported into a new land, a new context where, you know, those stories may not make sense or mm -hmm. they're sort of lost in translation. And so I really pick up um, after sort of covering this more historical and background material by following 84 young American born Iranian people um, through their everyday lives. So I 
spend one chapter looking at their lives in their childhood homes with their families, another chapter following them through high school and university. Um, we then conceptually follow them as they travel to and from Iran, um, usually with their families in the summertime. And that's a really fascinating case because um, Iran and the U.S. for 40 years have had no diplomatic relationship. And so it's actually quite tricky and complicated uh, for these young people to navigate, you know, the, the process of going quote unquote home. Um, and then finally, the last substantive chapter looks at um, a subset of these young people who participate in this progressive anti-racist Iranian American summer camp called mm -hmm. Camp Oyanza. How So what was the time frame uh, for this project and what were the ages of your um, the people you were in conversation with? Yeah, when I first began the study, at the youngest end, these 84 young people included like 13-year-olds to 25-year-olds on the highest end. So in sociology, we would call them like sort of adolescents and young adults, so people just mm -hmm. entering young adulthood. Um, and I did um, really focused field work of participant observation and in-depth interviews with these uh, young people for three years. Mm -hmm. And then um, also sort of kept in touch and updated what everyone was up to and sort of tracked them through another two years after I left the field. Um, so all told, it sort of covers the span of time that ranges from about 2009 to like um, basically 2015 is sort of when I really, ex you know, completely pulled out to finish writing the first draft mm -hmm. of the manuscript. Um, so the first thing that struck me when I picked up your book is that the book felt deeply personal. Um, even as it sort of captured, empirically captured the contradictions that many Americans of Middle Eastern origin face um, it, in being categorized as white in the census and, on, and in other demographic da data, but also in encountering, encountering racist attacks daily that distinctly identify them as non-white. Um, can you tell us more about your choice of drawing out that personal element to this phenomenon in your writing? Sure. Uh, you know, I think that um, part of my insistence on really providing a lot of narrative sort of motivation and, um, and momentum throughout the book is sort of like what we know about um, the science of learning and of cognition, right? That like we're human beings who are driven by narrative and by stories and that if you want someone to really be immersed and to learn and to remember things that having a story, right? With like a beginning and a middle and an end is a really, really effective way to convey information. And so that's something that I know both from the research, but also in my work as a teacher. And so um, even when, right, like I'm teaching a quantitative methods course to sociology undergrads, um, I'm still really insistent, right, on like locating the issues that we're, that we're looking at um, through narrative and through stories. So that was always um, certainly like at the forefront of my mind when I sat down with the different forms of data and sort of mixed methods approach that I took to this topic, right? That I really wanted stories to be at the forefront of, of the book. But, um, you know, there came a moment where I had to make a decision. Um, as you both probably know, right? Like we're trained in so many ways to have, um, you know, sort of this like supposed value neutral distance apart from what we study and, um, and to really like 
not use the the first person I and to have right all of these sort of levels of distance uh, in our in our in our scholarship. Um, but uh, at some point, like I sort of had to um, bite the bullet and just say, you know, like I'm going to do something that's different. And there were sort of many. Um, examples actually like in academia that I could look to of other people who had sort of unabashedly and uh, without you know apologizing sort of put themselves uh, in some ways into a kind of like a, a lens or an interlocutor sort of position sometimes in their texts you know mm -hmm. and so um, the moment I can say where I really felt like wow you know it would almost be sort of artificial to not put myself into this book was um, as I was writing the conclusion and the book kind of circles back around to where it began, which was about, you know, the sort of historical moment of what are known as racial prerequisite cases, where um, up until 1952 in the United States, an immigrant had to prove that he was white to also be naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And so in this way, race and citizenship were sort of highly twinned. And so I go into, like in the beginning of my book, a lot of the back history of where do we locate Middle Easterners and Iranians in this phenomena of racial prerequisite cases. And so I, I locate them in the archive and I do a bunch of work that's, um, you know, quite historical and archival there. But throughout the course of my research, and in particular, as I was finishing the first draft of the book, I realized that one of these major cases from 1925 featuring an Armenian claimant named Tatos Kartosian, um, that case was based in Portland, Oregon, which also is the place where I grew up. And so about a month or two before I finished the first draft of my book, um, as I was digging even deeper into the Kartosian case, I uncovered that I have a very personal connection actually to the Kartosian family and to the content of that case in Portland. Um, so I had this moment where I just said like, you know, do I pretend that this didn't happen? That this like moment of serendipity and this sort of like aha, right? Where sort of my scholarship and my personal biography just like came together. Um, and that was the moment when I sort of talked to other people who are both in academia, but also writers that are outside academia that are either journalists or people who work in media. And they just said like, are you crazy? Why wouldn't you? You have to, you know, like these things, you can't you can't ignore them. Um, they're so important to the to the story. And so, um, once I made that decision, that you know, as I uncovered my own sort of surprising relationship to this material, that I sort of owed it to to a reader, right, to also make that connection uh, clear to them too. Yeah, actually, I do have a question about your uh, interlocutors as a researcher. Um, just. Introducing that term for some of our non-academic audience, interlocutors is a term used in academia to define research subjects that we treat more as conversation partners than objects of study. Um, I noticed while reading that your, your interlocutors are often young, um, they're often uh, you know, school-age students um, transitioning into universities, I wanted to hear more about how you went about gaining their trust for interviews, um, how they got you got their consent and that of their guardians, and why you specifically made the choice of talking to younger, uh, younger people in order to address the questions you were looking at in your research. 
Um, that's such an awesome question. And I think that I try to unpack some of that backstory of how it came to be that I got access to these young people and um, the kind of like very sort of careful dance around trust and reciprocity um, uh, that, that was sort of an ongoing dance, right, across these years. Um, and so uh, the main way that I gained, I think, trust with their, their parents, so anybody right under the age of 18, um, they both had to consent as young people themselves, but also their guardians or their parents also had to consent to their participation in the project. And so um, a lot of the work that I did was really like sort of talking on the phone with young people's parents to, um, to really uh, explain what my goals were, what my training was, um, what I was hoping to achieve with this project. Um, there was a lot of generosity from even parents who were skeptical, right, who would invite me into their homes like a complete stranger. And um, it's a very sort of specific thing that I think in many cultures or ethnicities we have, right, where these strangers sort of open their door to you and they are so hospitable. And so a lot of time was spent, right, in the living rooms of young people um, chatting with their families and really, you know, sharing a little bit about myself and my background um, to be able to write sort of have them make a, a decision about whether or not they felt comfortable moving forward with their families with their family's participation and so um some of it was you know just the sort of like um uh, this careful negotiation of of um just building rapport and trust um but uh you know i couldn't when i first began the project in 2009 really have understood the key role that social media was going to play in the, the even just sort of like the basic arrangements that I made, right, to sort of <laughs> visit people all around the United States, because the 84 young people come from like all four corners mm. through the Midwest, and so um, the extent to which like both social media was a facilitator of um, my ability to recruit and connect with participants, but then also that it became the very artifact around which we had a lot of conversations, right, where even in my book, like I reproduce tweets um, and I screen capped Facebook posts and this is because organically in the in the field work with young people right social media was sort of constantly around us as a place where they were either you know sort of displaying affect or emotion um, places where racism was happening and they were experiencing you know bullying or um, social media was also a place where they found each other and forged really important connections and sort of mobilized political identities and so yeah back in 2009 I couldn't have imagined right how, how important that would be and so it also went a long way I think to facilitating my sort of recip my reciprocal relationship with these young people but like as much as I sort of knew what they were doing because we eventually became friends on social media they also saw what was going on in my life both sort of personally with my own for example, like career or my personal life, but also um, I really like kept them abreast of what I was doing. And so I would tell them, right, like I'm, I'm writing this chapter right now. Or like, <laughs> um, you know, I would constantly sort of send people like screen caps of what I was working on and say to them, right, like, do I have this going on right? Did I characterize this interaction correctly or the way that you remember it? And so, yeah, social media just, I cannot sort of um, overstate how, how key it was to, to my process. I think, I think that's also interesting because what you are describing and what you kind of hinted at too when we talked about um, the personal 
um, significance of what you wrote is that a lot of people don't fully understand that um, people who, like academics who do qualitative work really do form a very intimate and personal relationship um, with those that they, they speak with. And I think you just did a really good job of kind of highlighting that reciprocal intimacy um, between a, a scholar um, and their their topic. Yeah, it's it's so, um, it, not that it's a taboo, right? There has been a lot written about it, both sort of in academic settings, like in methods journals and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and in different books where um, there has been a lot of ink spilled about the, <laughs> you know, research participant and researcher relationship. But um, until you sort of go through it yourself, uh, it's still all just very academic, you know? Um, so it was a really profound experience for me to um, both sort of create these long-lasting relationships, and I still count, you know, so many of these families and these young people as, like, you know, really important sort of uh, people in my life, but then also um, there are, you know, like plenty of times in the book where I do reproduce what someone said to me, for example, in an interview or if I was doing observations of people's behavior in a field site, but I also am a sociologist, right, who's analyzing what was said or who was analyzing what was what was done, um, and it's not always pretty, right, the conclusion that either I draw or my or might draw and I just so appreciate that you know like uh, the interlocutors with whom I shared you know copies of the book in advance and asked them for comments that they were so um, they were just really generous about mm -hmm. understanding that I my goal wasn't to paint our community in a positive light per se right mm -hmm. and it wasn't to um, give everybody a pat on the back and sort of make excuses <laughs> right but to really explain and that sometimes I came out looking ugly or that they didn't necessarily always look you know awesome either and that um, there was just a lot of a lot of good faith and trust and so I, I'm forever grateful to the young people that that really allowed me um, to not only you know, characterize them in their lives, but to also really analyze and interpret them too. Yep. I remember once um, attending a talk by another race and ethnicity scholar, uh, Manel Mahtani, who talked about the interview as an extractive sort of colonialist process and how often you need to make very deliberate choices throughout doing research to make sure that there is that kind of reciprocity that you're talking about. So it's very it's very interesting that you sort of have elaborated the choices you've made and the way you have integrated them into asking, well, did I characterize that right? Um, did, you know, was I, even if I was critical, does it represent, you know, accurately what I'm seeing, things like that. That's really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you about the elephant in the room throughout this conversation, which is the census. Um, I know that there's been sort of a move towards, a mobilization towards creating a Middle Eastern category in the census, and, you know, it, many people would read this and argue, well, this solves a lot of the dilemma you're facing. If there was at least a nameable thing that we can, you know, we can categorize Middle Eastern, um, Middle Eastern communities as that. Um, the other, the other tension that I see is a lot of people sort of being afraid of being, being categorized, particularly in a particular sort of political environment where there's talk of a register of Muslims that, 
you know, racialization of Muslims in the U.S. as being Middle Eastern. How do you see the census interacting with some of the dynamics you're capturing in your book? Yeah, um, you know, some people have sort of said to me, like, well, couldn't we just resolve this <laughs> paradox or this tension, right, by, like, going gung-ho forward with the MENA category, which has been proposed, you know, for the 2020 census and recently um, from the Office of Management and Budget, uh, which is part of the sort of, like, umbrella of the White House, uh, uh, they recently said, right, that we're not going to move forward with that and we're going to keep the racial categories the same as they've been. Uh, they said, right, like, well, if we just have the MENA category, then wouldn't that sort of resolve this situation? And so throughout my book, um, particularly when I talk about the kinds of myths and narratives that Iranian people bring with them to the U.S., um, and this is also true for many other immigrant groups, right, that they kind of come to this country with their own sense of, like, cultural superiority or a different sort of understanding of a racial hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. That, like, um, you, even with a MENA category, that is in some ways like an erasure of the way white supremacy has its own logics and how Iranian people often sort of, um, you know, end up promoting that, uh, whether they mean to or not. And so they sort of have their own original relationship to these concepts. But nonetheless, um, you know, I, I'll say unabashedly, although my book does not make a recommendation about it, I do think that um, the critique about people, um, you know, saying like that there is um, something really to be to be feared about um, about being identified by the government as MENA and somehow being broken out of the white box. Right. And that there's a risk there. Um, I'm not particularly swayed by that. Um, by that argument, and I'll explain why, which is that we have evidence to show that despite being collapsed in the white category, there have been plenty of instances following the Patriot Act and the War on Terror mm -hmm. where Middle Eastern communities have been identified by law enforcement and the government. So, for example, um, the NYPD, right, was doing a lot of work that connected to the FBI and to the Office of Homeland Security where they were wiretapping and surveilling different Arab and Middle Eastern communities in the tri-state area. And so, um, you know, they were able to, at zip code level, by people's last names and other mm -hmm. measures, be able to figure out where people lived. Mm -hmm. And so, um, to me, this really shows that even when um, this group was sort of, you know, like lost in the white box, that should, um, should law enforcement or the government want to know where they live, we have evidence, right, mm -hmm. that there has been, like, collusion across these mm -hmm. different um these different arms of government to be able to actually identify people and to to you know like unfairly profile and police them and so um, I think there's only if if we can say that that is happening then what the MENA category would actually give is it would be a mandate for the government to have to make sure that uh, Middle Eastern people right had like equitable access to mm -hmm. educational resources to health care to any number of things that being a federally recognized um, ethno-racial group would sort of create right this this responsibility and so it's not surprising that I think under this administration um, there is you know a, a lack of um, desire to create just one 
one more group to whom that there would be, you know, some sort of like extra additional responsibility mm-hmm. uh, to to make sure that their human rights weren't violated and that their civil rights were upheld. And so um, I think it makes plenty of sense of why um, the MENA category hasn't been um, hasn't been approved for the 2020 census. Um, but I do want to say that I think there's much more to be gained than lost. And what's really interesting is like, even in the internal documents that you find at the Census Bureau, when they tested the possibility of having a MENA category over the past 40 years of activism where Arab American and, you know, different sort of Muslim and MENA groups had said, right, we want this box, we need this box. The Census Bureau had sort of said, well, you know, like, we don't think that you guys even recognize one another as like members of the same group. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, you each have your own sort of nationalities and your ethnicities and your religions. And, and is this really a coherent identity? And so we didn't have good data about that to be able to say, no, like these are groups that recognize one another, right? And sort of, they have some sort of an affinity and this cognitively makes some sort of sense as a group. But when the census bureau in 2015 finally tested this, they saw that across the range of like 29 different subgroups in the MENA category, everything from sort of like Yemenis on the one hand to like Lebanese and Iranians who across all the groups, right, sort of are the ones that like perhaps see themselves as the most white or, you know, sort of have um, really high levels of SES and that kind of stuff that Mm -hmm. the majority of people in every single one of the 29 groups went for a MENA box when they were offered a white box. Mm -hmm. And so we had the evidence right there, right? That like the time is ripe for this. This is a category that is legible that people do opt into when given the opportunity. That's awesome. That's really, yeah. Uh, Nora and I were kind of getting really excited and and jumping up and down a little bit uh, in our seats while you were giving that entire explanation. Um, But just really quickly to clarify for people who don't know what the abbreviation stands for, MENA means Middle East and North Africa. Um, yes, sorry about that. That was throwing out a lot of jargon. No, 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 it's okay. Right? Like, that's a, that's a, it's a group that sort of, you know, like, when we think of Middle Eastern, like, that's, yeah, it, it, it ends up, right, like, the, something that I've been very um, intrigued by, like, borderline obsessed with is that um, I spent, you know, a lot of my time sort of throughout graduate school um, and as early career faculty sort of being told like, well, what is Middle Eastern exactly? Or like, why MENA? What is the, what is the label that we should use? Um, And like how different really is this group than white? And so something I like to sort of point people to is to say, well, look at like casting calls in Mm -hmm. Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That when a casting director writes up a call, and they say white, they fully do not expect people from the MENA region to to apply for that call, right? And they would not get callbacks. But, like, in Hollywood casting calls, MENA or Middle Eastern, like, is its own category, and it gets called out there. And when they want that, they specify that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really interesting, and there's just sort of, like, this different evidence that in so many ways for me as a sociologist really contradicted many of the theories that, you know, people had sort of tried to use to explain to me either, like, why I was wrong, or why I shouldn't have done this project, um, that it wouldn't be sort of accepted, or that it wouldn't resonate. But I just sort of felt like all around us, we had these sort of social examples of how MENA people were already sort of cognitively thought of as not white, or sort of a group apart, you know? Um, so we have one final question for you, 
And it's a question we're, we're going to be asking every scholar that we speak with. Um, so, you know, in universities, we have this tendency to kind of really focus on um, intellectual biographies. But a lot of times, um, there is some sort of a personal narrative behind why we study what we study. Um, and we kind of touched upon that a little bit in your case, but I'm, I'm curious um, how have your own experiences, you know, throughout your entire life um, kind of lead you to become a sociologist of race and ethnicity? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think I always loved the written word. And so um, I, I wanted to do something. And my parents thought, like, maybe I would grow up to be a writer because I was just that kid that was, mm -hmm. like, you know, always checking out, like, so many books at the library. Mm -hmm. And I learned to print at a really early age. Um, but a funny thing that my parents have also told me is that at the same time that, like, I would say I want to be a librarian and I love to read and this and that, that do you remember those um, picture books by Richard Scarry? Busy Town, where it showed like yeah. animals with different occupations. Uh -huh. um, I had one of those when I was growing up, and I learned about like a taxi driver from that because I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Taxis were not like a thing you saw <laughs> on the street very often, but through this book, right, I, I, I learned about what a taxi driver was, and I thought that, that was amazing like, um, that you could sort of be in this situation where you're navigating and because I also loved maps and I loved geography too and so I thought it would be cool to like have a job where I was driving and going into different neighborhoods but that I had this rotating cast of characters sitting in the back seat <laughs> who I could make small talk with and so I sort of had this like late realization by the time I got my job um, you know as an assistant professor that what I do is sort of like blending being a librarian which was like one of the first jobs I said I wanted with the idea I had of what taxi drivers do from this like <laughs> early you know picture book that I had when I was little, um, and I think that you know sociology actually in some way like brokers sort of the two things I liked about those occupations and mushes them together, um, and so it feels good to be living out kind of like a childhood dream, yeah. and I'm really satisfied in my career. I think it just um, it it. It is a job I didn't know existed when I was little, but it actually is exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. It was brilliant um, talking to you about your book. Uh, we highly recommend, for those of you who haven't read it, The Limits of Whiteness. It is excellent. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. This was a real honor and pleasure. the Media and Religion podcast. If you want to continue the conversation, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so don't hesitate to tweet at us or leave a comment. And you can listen to this and other episodes of the Media and Religion podcast on iTunes and Google Play and wherever else your favorite podcasts are housed. This episode was edited by Ashley Campbell, and our theme music was composed by Art Bamford.